one. Hey, everyone. We're doing a breaking news story today. Uh, we are tracking the developments of the killing of Ayed uh, al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda. Holly's done a lot of work on this guy in the past, and with his passing, I think it's time that um, we recant some of the history of this man. Go ahead, Holly. So, yes, the hunting Ayman al-Zawahiri, and he is somebody that I've I've looked into a lot over the over the years. And um, and around the beginning of 2019, I spent a lot of time uh, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, sort of in the area, trying to kind of piece together whatever I could about him and about um, his whereabouts at that point. He was the number two al-Qaeda leader. Um, and so at that point, he was a $25 million U.S. bounty was on his head. He was right in there under Osama bin Laden. Of course, when Osama was killed, he took the ranks as the as the top leader. So I think it's important, firstly, if we go back and, and take a little bit um, uh, background sort of about him. Um, he was always kind of framed as being a more wiser alternative to Baghdadi, who at that point was leading, leading ISIS, who... Zawahiri himself characterized as naive and irresponsible. So Zawahiri was this older guy. He was Egyptian. Um, I think at that point he was around 67. So he would have been in his early 70s um, at this point when he was killed. Um, and he went under a number of different pseudonyms. He was Abu Muhammad. He was called the doctor. He was the teacher. Um, he was Abdel Muaz. So he just had all these different names and was sort of this, this leader and, and supposed white guy. And he was actually an eye surgeon. And he was always known to sort of wear these these white turbans. And he he got his start as a teenage member of Cairo's Muslim Brotherhood. He was an Egyptian, um, where he formed his own underground cell that was devoted to establishing an Islamic state called the Egyptian Islamic Jihad before he went on to medical school. And so then Zawahiri kind of went on to climb the terrorist ranks in his early 30s after a religious visit to Saudi Arabia in 1985. And that's sort of where he merged his own outfit with Osama bin Laden's uh, fighting fleet. Um, and he actually became Osama's personal physician and advisor around 1986. Uh, and then again in 1993, he was reported to have even traveled to California uh, to raise money for Afghan children wounded in the war with the Soviets. Um, in the ensuing years, Zawahiri ordered such attacks, um, including the 1995 bombing of the Egyptian embassy in Islamabad, um, and he played a prominent part in the coordinated series of 1998 U.S. embassy explosions in East Africa. So he he certainly has a, quite a track record. And really, then what we saw um, in 2013 was the the rise of ISIS, um, and that really came following a split from Al Qaeda. And Zawahiri, as I said earlier, really came out to denounce the rival organization. Um, and that was sort of a strategic bid not to alienate vast segments of the population who were uh, sort of uh, looking for that extremism, but still opposed to the ISIS mentality. Um, so, you know, while Baghdadi, who was the ISIS leader at that point, was fairly camera shy um, and, you know, rarely ever appeared in, in videos or, or um, even voice recordings, so to speak, Zawahiri really has quite frequently, although less in recent years, um, featured on the propaganda screen. Um, again, playing that wise role um, and releasing different videos with audio footage and, and playing um, a special tribute. He often played uh, 
prominent uh, tribute to the Hakanis. And when one of these sort of Hakani leaders would die, he would often release these sort of uh, tribute videos. Um, of course, then we can we can sort of fast forward and look at Afghanistan now, um, which almost a year ago fell to the Taliban and, of course, a, a major leader um, within the Taliban and, and, of course, one of the, you know, the top security director of the country um, is Siraj Haqqani. So it does kind of demonstrate a sort of a long-term connection between al-Qaeda and, um, and the Haqqanis, but we can sort of talk more about that um, in a little bit. I just wanted to keep going with a little bit more background. Um, so over the years, he sort of um, had these sort of stirring speeches. I remember in 2014, he called for the uh, the return of Al-Qaeda in India. Um, and so it was always just very unclear where he was hiding out. And that was something that I was really looking into at the time. And the intelligence on his location at that point in 2019 was really varied. Um, in early 2017, I had um, some very good sources uh, in the US that sort of said that Pakistan was the likely sanctuary, which, of course, at that point in those federally uh, administered tribal areas, that was where a lot of the, the terrorists and, and the Akhanis and others were hiding out. Um, and then a little bit later, a couple of years later, more in sort of 2019, uh, intelligence operatives both in the United States and sort of in the Middle East had pinpointed his location to those ungoverned spaces, um, both sort of Pakistan, Afghanistan, it wasn't quite clear, um, but those areas, you know, they tend to sort of cross those borders uh, fairly freely um, at that point. So it still, um, you know, was very unclear, possibly in the Waziristan region. Um, and there were numerous reports of his sightings. Um, I think that there were some reports that he was even captured, but they were generally considered to be false alarms. Um, I also do remember in early 2016, the U.S. conducted a drone strike on Zawahiri's confirmed location at that point, which was North Waziristan's Shawal Valley in Pakistan. But apparently um, he managed to escape. So, and I think a decade earlier, the U.S. was also reported to have launched an airstrike on the Pakistani border in a village called Dem Adola, which was near Afghanistan. And that was an action on intelligence that he was bunkered down in that particular area, but he was not among those killed. Um, a year before that, the NSA actually intercepted al-Qaeda communications um, that were bound for him from a location in Baghdad. Um, and to his dwellings at that point that were traced to Pakistan. So he has sort of has had a long history of being in that area. But generally over the years, I think that, um, that Zawahiri has sort of fallen from the radar. And that is with the rise of ISIS, with the rise of different terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda, I think Dennis just hasn't been uh, what it was certainly 20 years ago. And, and you could sort of argue that even now, um, Al-Qaeda is sort of present but not powerful. But having said that, the, the killing of Zawahiri is certainly symbolic. It may come with ramifications. And while Al-Qaeda sort of in Afghanistan, Pakistan region may not be particularly powerful itself, uh, we could argue that it's certainly rising with a lot of its affiliate groups um, in Syria and in parts of Africa. And so he is sort of the, he was the leader of all of it. So you could definitely argue that he still had power, even though Al-Qaeda cells in his particular area weren't that active. Mm. Well, so it sounds like when all is said and done, he, because of the departure of the United States from Afghanistan and the fact that the Haqqani are 
fairly well represented in the Taliban government that he felt it was a new sanctuary for him. Didn't work out that way, but maybe. Mm. So the the sort of what I was told from very good sources, um, both you know, connected to Al-Qaeda and connected to the Haqqanis um, when I was living in Afghanistan last year was essentially that Al-Qaeda did exist. I was told, you know, there were certainly people that were loyal to Zawahiri, loyal to Al-Qaeda that were still in Afghanistan, but they were under very, very strict um, orders and conditions that they could absolutely do no military action. Um, and any any evidence of them planning, plotting, trying to, you know, do anything um, militarily would result in, in them being punished or killed. So, and and, and that directive, I, I assume, probably still stood. And it's unclear that if Zawahiri and, and what exactly he was doing, how military it was. Um, and it's also unclear at this point whether... You know, how much of of uh, the Taliban leadership and the Haqqanis themselves knew um, that he was there, what his end role was. Again, my impressions from sources within those networks were that they knew that they were there, that they were living freely in Afghanistan after that fall, but were basically, you know, essentially under some sort of sort of house arrest where they where they couldn't actually act upon um, anything that would violate the Doha Agreement with the United States, which of course, um, you know, was that in exchange for the U.S. completely leaving the country, that the Taliban would not harbor or um, enable any terrorist organizations to plot anything against the U.S. in its interest. However, the Doha Agreement was very carefully worded. Um, it, to me, you know, in my interpretation of it, it didn't say that they couldn't exist. Um, it just said that they couldn't, you know, plot attacks against the U.S. or or its allies and interests. So, um, you know, the Taliban has sort of already come out with a statement um, decrying the drone strike over the weekend, which happened in an area of Kabul. Um, presumably by um, in an area that Saraj Akhani, um, you know, someone that was one of his top aides lived. That was the house that Zawahiri was in. Um, but but again, the Taliban is saying that in itself is a violation of the Doha agreements. But again, you can you could also argue um, sort of many different ways on that front. And, and it depends on the interpretation of that, too. But I certainly think his killing, I mean, it's been a, more than 20 years coming. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I uh, as far as given the things that he's done in the past, I, I don't feel that it's a great loss to this planet that he is gone. However, um, you know, what I, what I am seeing is that you have a situation here where um, it's, I mean, if the guy was killed in a house owned by a top Haqqani aide, that would tell me that the Afghans knew that he was there um and um that somehow or other we found out that he was there um which means that there is still a very strong u.s presence in the country and um the interpretation of the doha agreement from the point of view of technical nuances as to whether or not the u.s had rights to attack the territory of a sovereign country is something that I think is going to be debated, particularly in the context of other things going on in the world like Ukraine, where uh, attacks on sovereign nations are are going on. And uh, what I, you know, it's not so much Zawahiri at the moment that, that 
has piqued my interest in this, but it's whether or not the U.S. is leaving itself open to having you know, justified other incursions by other countries around this planet from the point of view of uh, its own actions and what the implications yeah, and, are to foreign policy. Yeah, and I do, you know, I do also think that it's really important to to look at, you know, we can all speculate, but, um, you know, what, how the Taliban does the Taliban want to show strength and, and try to issue some responses? Is it dangerous for any Americans working in the country? Um, you know, what power they have to retaliate beyond a statement condemning it. Um, but you could, I also think that does that leave them open to feeling like they can violate bigger parts of that Doha agreement in harboring more terrorists? But I do think the Taliban really knows that it doesn't want to go up against, you know, the military beast that is the United States. Um, and it would really be banking on the U.S. and the Biden administration not wanting to enter the Afghan fray in any way. Um, so I think that, um, you know, the Khani's made, you know, if they were aware that he was there and presumably, you know, they did that then raises the questions of did they get sloppy um, and and what, um you know what? What else is kind of going on in in the country, and and that is certainly a a cause for concern. And they're going to, honestly, hope that they're not going to get bombed. So they're going to want to make sure that they're, um, you know, from going forward, that that anything else happening or any other presence in their country, um, you know, is taken care of. And and I was also told by other sources too that, again, going back to the notion that being told that Al Qaeda certainly still existed, um, and that was with a quite amount of, of displeasure. So um, I think it also depends on which factions of the Taliban that you're speaking to. And the Taliban itself is not sort of a cohesive organization that all agrees upon one thing. However, when it comes to issues like Al-Qaeda and the harboring of, of terrorist groups, um, it does raise that the sort of the question of who else is there and you know, how benign Zawahiri was. I mean, we certainly didn't hear much from him in recent times. It could be argued that he really was this aging benign figure who really didn't have much impact. And now does that actually pave the way for Al-Qaeda to find a, a new and, and much more charismatic leader um, the way that, that bin Laden was when he started that organization? Yeah, well, that's, that's actually also one of the things that, that came to my mind was if he was this old man, and the influence of Al-Qaeda was waning, particularly in that part of the world, um, that the people that were keeping that organization active are much younger and tend to be really in the Horn of Africa these days. So um, but by taking him out, does that create room for all of these people to uh, you know, create a new blood in, in the system? That's all, that's all, and you worry about that with other organizations too, like ISIS, that uh, every time you take out the, the leadership, the, what you're really doing is you're creating, creating room for new people to grow. Um, it, the other thing is um, from the point of view of you know, larger global politics, uh, the, the, the Taliban you know, are kind of in a position now because they they are needing protection from the um, the the United States and its long reach uh, to um, attack things with impunity. Um, does that open the gateway for other nations that want to create trouble for the U.S., like Russia and China, to enter into Afghanistan in a more open way that uh, can cause us to have to take pause in other parts of the world, like Ukraine? 
I mean, I think, you know, Russia and China certainly have a relationship with the Taliban. They certainly have a presence already in the country. Um, Russia still has its embassy. You know, China still definitely has a diplomatic relations and a foothold. I don't necessarily see this being um, any sort of great catalyst for them expanding upon that. I think the Taliban philosophy is is quite strong in that um, it wants diplomatic relations with other countries, but it certainly doesn't want other countries meddling in its affairs. Um, and so this is also going to, on that note, raise the question of where did this drone launch from? Um, people in Kabul have obviously been quick to sort of pinpoint Pakistan as the place which traditionally it was, but um, you know it could have been equally to Tajikistan, it could have been Uzbekistan, it could have been Kazakhstan. At this point, it is still unclear where the drone came from. And of course, since the pullout a year ago, the US has been quietly trying to configure how it is going to conduct operations uh, from neighboring countries, um, all of which you know the Taliban has has been quick to to decry as well and, and say that that would be an infringement. Um, so, you know, I think the Taliban will be quite interested to learn, um, you know, who enabled this uh, particular drone strike, uh, which allegedly uh, was by an RX-9, which is a Hellfire missile armed with long blades and is aimed at killing targets with a, a kinetic energy. And it's it's pretty accurate in minimizing uh, collateral damage. However, I think that there will be a lot of questions raised as to, to which country and what they are getting out of it um, to enable these operations to happen. But certainly it is important, um, you know, to a degree that these operations do you know, happen if it is a legitimate target. Um, of course, the U.S. again has to um, be aware of the Doha Agreement, but it is worded with a, a fair amount sort of interpretation either way. Yeah, well, I'm sure that uh, in the wake of this, there are uh, professional and amateur military analysts that are drawing radius of operation circles around all possible places where a drone like this could have been launched from. And there are many uh, places that are within within reach of um, that that could make things interesting depending on what the answer is. But um, that's not something we're going to get any more definition on today. Um, it's an interesting history though that this the, of, of this man, I remember back in the ISIS period, much of your coverage was about the fight between al-Baghdadi and al-Zawahiri in terms of their disagreement with each other over uh, the what was happening in Iraq. And um, well, now they're both gone. So that's that, isn't it? Never say gone. Never say gone. Yeah, well, that's true. These, uh, these snakes have a, have a tendency to be multi-headed and come back again. Anyway, Holly, thanks for the review of you know where this man came from, and um, we'll find out more about how he came to his end in coming days for sure. Thank you. Thank you.